and cling to the old rugged cross. Some would call that foolish. Some would call that powerful. Some might take what we have to say today and say, so you're saying that the way to salvation is to trust a man executed with the type of death reserved for the worst criminals, and you're going to tell me that he was actually innocent and he voluntarily went through this because he chose to take my punishment? And then you're going to tell me he's God? And some would say that's foolish and start lining me up for a padded cell. But today we want to talk about is that foolishness? Is that truly something to be mocked or scoffed or is it something more? You know, today is April Fool's Day. I don't know whether, I know we're all celebrating Easter, but it's April Fool's Day. First time April Fool's Day and Easter have coincided since 1956. So it's been a while. Um, yes, for some of you young people, that is before me. So just, um, <laughs> I finally found something. Um, <laughs> and, and on this day, so many times we're, we're playing, you know, practical jokes that we're trying to show that somebody's foolish, right? And some of you have probably already had your conniving, evil, horrible ways and, and tried to trick somebody into doing something. But, but foolishness is what you're counting on for those tricks to work. This morning, I want to talk a little bit about foolishness. You know, are we ever foolish? Anyone do anything foolish this last week? Yeah. I, re- I remember um, back, back a ways back now, one of the, the foolish things I used to do is I would run out of gas all the time. I don't know. And, and here's the thing. I'm trying to be most efficient with my time. And so I knew when the red light came on in that particular car, I had 75 or so miles that I could go after that. And, you know, to get gas early would be a complete waste of time. And so I would push that to the, the very last moment. I remember one picture, and this had happened over and over, and it wasn't probably Susie's favorite thing. Um, and in fact, I knew that it wasn't her favorite thing with statements like, if you run out of gas again, I am not pushing, I am not helping, I am not doing anything. And so the next week I ran out of gas again, and... Um, and I can remember I was in South County and there, it was in an area where I just could not find a gas station. And so I run out of gas. I'm on the side of the road and, and I'm thinking, I can't call Susie. <laughs> she, she said she wouldn't help. And, and besides that, I don't even want to endure what's going to come my way if I call her. And, and I'm going through coworkers and keep in mind, I was down by where we lived. I was like, like just a mile from where we live. I'm calling people five, ten miles away, saying, hey, can you come? And finally, someone came and helped me, and it's my business partner's <laughs> wife that came and helped me, and eventually, I, I think I did tell you eventually, but I, I was foolish. I haven't had this happen in a long time, if not, surprise. Um, <laughs> I was foolish and, and made poor choices and assumptions that simply weren't true. Now, when we think of foolishness, one of the things you need to know in the world we live in, especially in a post-Christian era, in a post-church era, more and more this world thinks we are foolish for singing the songs we just sang. That that we are foolish for believing that there is a God now, that's, that's in question, and that He saves or even that we need salvation. And today as we look at the cross and the resurrection, the gospel, I want to talk about that. Is it foolish Or is it powerful? Are we fools worshiping here today? It'd be good to know, right? Because there's better things we could do on Easter morning if if we're just foolish and this is futile. But we're in good company. 
It's interestingly, interestingly enough, one of the first cover-ups of the resurrection was, was trying to play a joke on people or trying to fake people, assuming that they're foolish. And, and we saw the guards go to the authorities and the authorities pay them off. And they said, tell you what, go out and tell everyone. You remember what they said? Go out and tell everyone the disciples stole the body. And, and they're just playing an April Fool's joke. They didn't say April Fool's, but they're just playing a joke on all of you. And, and it says, and we'll take care of your back. And the soldiers took the money in Matthew 28 and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So from the beginning, people were saying, it's just, it's just a trick. They're being foolish. They're trying to trap you into believing this new religion, this new belief of Christianity. Paul stood before Festus and he's describing the gospel and and he describes the cross and he describes the resurrection. And this is the response. And, And Paul says in Acts 26, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The very next verse. And as he was saying these things, In his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're a fool. What you believe is nuts. It's crazy. And so today we want to talk about being a little crazy to the world and about the truth of the cross. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1. Chapter 18, or verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. If you don't have a Bible, there's black Bibles right underneath one of the seats around you. And you can grab those. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take that with you as our gift to you. And, and so you have God's Word. But 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. It's on page 952. Um, if you're looking for it there, and I'll put it on the screen as well so you can follow along. But what's interesting is the Bible does say the cross is foolishness. To some. And so Paul here is writing to the church at Corinth. And he says, For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And right from that verse, we have a contrast. We have a comparison that we'll look at this morning. It's the two sides of your notes. Either the cross is foolishness or it's the power of God. For it is written in verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, through the foolishness of the cross, to save those who believe. For Jesus demands, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We're going to focus in on the beginning and end of that section to the first part where he gives that comparison. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And so let's look at the first first statement um, that Paul makes there. The first statement we have is that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who don't believe. And point letter A in your notes, the cross sounds like incomprehensible foolishness to those that don't believe. And now, many of you have grown up in the church. 
and you're used to the, the claims of Christ and you're, you're used to everything we're talking about today. And so for us, it's hard to think of it as foolishness. But I want to talk just real briefly because some of you here may not know Christ and maybe you, you've never experienced the claims of Jesus and what he's done and you've never heard that story. And maybe this will answer some of your objections and you might be thinking some of these things. See, the word for folly there is the word moria in, in Greek. And it's where we get the word moron from, which I thought was just very helpful to understand folly and foolishness. The idea is madness or insanity. It's irrational. It makes no sense. And so somehow Paul is saying that the cross makes no sense, makes no sense to those who are perishing, perishing to those that don't follow God. Now, before we, we get really incensed about that, consider Passion Week. Consider where the disciples were because this is where they got to before they understood. They thought that, that the cross was folly and foolishness. If you think about it on that Sunday, Palm Sunday, which we celebrated last week, the disciples are coming in over the Mount of Olives with Jesus and they get him the colt and, and he's riding the donkey down the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem, just like Zechariah 9 prophesied about the Messiah. And people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Lord, save us now. And, and they're putting their robes down and palm branches. This is the coronation of the king. And so the disciples a week ago are as excited as they can be. And they come down and they come into Jerusalem and they're like, yes, now's the time. And Jesus does nothing. It says he looks around, left the city, went back over the Mount of Olives to Bethany to stay with some friends. And from there... From there, it was just downhill for the disciples. Next day, they come back into Jerusalem and they're walking with Jesus. And all of a sudden, he starts throwing over the tables of the Jewish leaders, not the Romans, the Jewish leaders. And he, he cleanses the temple. And the next couple of days, he's arguing and teaching in the, in the temple. He's debating, rather. And, and the disciples are thinking, okay, this isn't what he should be doing. But okay, he has his way. We'll see what he's doing. And then Thursday happens. And Thursday, Jesus says, go get a, a, a room. Go get a, a room in Jerusalem. And they, they go to the upper room and they're celebrating Passover together, celebrating God's deliverance from the slavery of, of Egypt. And as they're sitting up there, Jesus is talking to them and he's saying some just crazy things. Some things that people would call foolishness. As he talks about, I'm going to be handed over to men and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And, and they're sitting there hearing all these things and wondering what is going on. And then he says, one of you is going to betray me. And they're like, what? And, and, and then Peter, he, he reminds Peter that he's going to deny him. And then they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane and they're hearing Jesus pray things like, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And it's just all downhill to their expectations. Because Jesus had a different way. And he was trying to accomplish something different. And then in the dark of Gethsemane, they see the torches start to come out of the city. And they see the mob come. And the mob comes to Jesus and Judas kisses Jesus, Jesus on the cheek. And they arrest Jesus. And Mark records just a, a staggering statement where it says, and they all left him and fled. Jesus' closest friends at that point thought, this is nuts, I'm out of here. This, 
all my hopes for the last three years, all, all of the, the ministry and the good things he's done, this is a horrible way to end that. This is a foolish way to end that. And then we had the, the six trials, the three from the Jewish um, leaders and the three from the Romans and beaten and mocked. And finally, they watched their friend and their, who they thought was the Messiah nailed to the tree, nailed to the cross and hung to die. They listen to the crowds before that as Pilate offers them other choices, say, crucify him, crucify him, which is vastly different than, Lord, save us now, Lord, save us now. And so it may not have seemed like the most powerful, effective plan to save mankind, but it was. But it was. They just didn't know it yet because they hadn't experienced the power of God. And so it was still foolishness to them. And that's where we are before we experience the power of God, before we experience His salvation. This doesn't make sense. It is a little crazy. Tom Schreiner says, Imagine if someone said today for the first time, a man who was executed by the political authorities in a small Middle Eastern country is the Savior of the world. Now, you might, you might think you're reading National Enquirer or something like that. But this morning, as we explore the rest of the story, as we explore the the resurrection, as we explore the power of the gospel, we'll find this isn't foolishness at all. It's an amazing act of God's love and grace and power and mercy. And so this message that Jesus hung on the cross took our sin and its penalty on himself and then offers us a free gift of salvation. It It does sound foolish to some. Some of the things I put in your notes, just a quick survey of maybe some of the ways, reasons people think this is foolish. First, it's hard to see the link between a brutal death and salvation of others. Because that link, unless you have more information, doesn't make sense. And we have to be careful when we're sharing the gospel to not just say, oh, Jesus died on the cross, he was brutally executed, and so you can be saved. We've gone from A to Z and we've missed all the linkage in between. See, it's foolish when you don't understand that to to think of how someone dying could bring salvation. We get heroism, but execution? That doesn't make sense. And so to answer that objection, to answer that thought, we need to help them understand what the cross means. That this wasn't just a brutal death in, in isolation from everything else, but this was a man who had done no wrong, that was innocent, that chose to take on himself the penalty for our sin. That chose to take the wages of our sin or the result of our sin. Sometimes I explain this to my kids that if, if I'm going to punish one of them, and right now Xbox is really big, and so maybe I'm going to take Xbox away for a year and a half, and um, maybe a little extreme, uh, a year and a half. And what if one of the other ones said, you know what, I love my brother so much, I'm going to take that for them. We'd fall over dead. People don't do that. But, but that's what Jesus did. And that's why the crucifixion and, and the death on the cross, that's why this brutal death actually is tied to salvation because it was Him taking the price, the penalty of our sin, so we don't have to. So we're saved from the wages of sin that are dead. You know, sometimes people object and sometimes the cross can seem foolish. The second one there is people don't die for someone they don't know or care about. I'm probably not going to die for a stranger on my, 
on, on the street. Would I die for my family? Absolutely. We get that. But would we die for a stranger or would we die for someone that is opposed to us, that hates us? See, in this story, the hero dies for the villain, not the other way around. That's not cool. And we don't get that. And so it is foolish when we start to think of why would Jesus suffer and die in our place? And we go to Romans 5.8 and it says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were opposed, while we were shaking our fist in the air at Him and defiant, He loved us so much that He died for us. I think this one's particularly hard because we don't understand unconditional love. We, we have... In this fallen world, we have a flawed, skewed version of love that so often is based on performance and based on, on what I can receive. And so to see unconditional, perfect love, we can be a little skeptical. But Jesus pursued us. God pursued us. And he died for us. I think another objection, another reason the cross can appear foolish to the world is there's just no such thing as a free lunch. You heard that statement? There's no such thing as a free lunch. And in fact, whenever you get an email that says, free if you just click here. First of all, don't click there. That's bad. But we know that. We we call that spam or it's a scam. And so when we think, when we hear the message of the gospel that it is a free gift of God, you don't have to pay the price for your sins. You just have to accept Christ and follow Him, repent of what you've done, and say, I accept your gift of salvation. The natural response of this world is, what's the catch? What's the catch? There's no free lunch. I, I had some fun and I looked up the history of, of the statement, no free lunch. And in the mid-19th century, 1850 or so, it became really popular in America for bars to offer a free lunch. And so they would say, come have a free lunch, but it was always with the purchase of a drink. And so the, the phrase came, there's no free lunch, because you actually have to buy something and then you have to pay for the drunkenness and the alcoholism and everything else that follows it. There's no such thing as a free lunch. And then, of course, it made its way to politics in the, the 1940s. And Vice President Wallace, um, he, he presented an idea after World War II that after World War II, we should give free clothing, free food, free shelter around the world. And then actually, one of the first newspapers to respond to that was here in Long Beach. And the, the author said, some people say there is no such thing as a free lunch. But you listen to a fireside chat from Washington, and the voice will tell you all about it and how you can make something for nothing. Another Washington journalist said, Mr. Wallace neglects the fact that such a thing as a free lunch never existed. Until man acquires the power of creation, someone will always have to pay for a free lunch. I don't want to get into politics here, but that last statement is brilliant for salvation. Someone has to pay. A righteous, holy God must demand payment for the sin. And just as he says there's no free lunch, someone has to pay, that's what's so incredible about the gospel is someone did pay. Someone has to pay. A holy God requires sin to be confronted. And so Jesus hung on that cross that is foolishness to some and said, I'll pay it. I'll pay it. So actually, if someone says there's no such thing as a free lunch, I would say, you're right. You're right. There's no such thing as a free lunch. 
And our salvation cost our Savior dearly. Cost Him dearly. Another objection, another reason the cross might be seen as foolish is when we understand the seriousness of our sin, when we finally look inside and say, you know what, I am a sinner. And and some people never get to that point because they're just so wonderful. But when we finally get to a point of saying, yeah, I've done things that are wrong and and inside, then the, the next step is asking the question, how can God love me and extend grace to me? I know me. See, I know the junk in my heart more than you do. You know the junk in your heart more than I do. And if we get down to it, we are all sinners, depraved, evil people with some of our thoughts, some of our actions. And so it becomes really hard to comprehend the depth of God's mercy and His grace. If I'm really a sinner, if the wages of sin is really death, then I should be dead. How could God love me? How could God extend grace to me? But He does because it's perfect love. He does because He wants relationship with us and created us in His image for that relationship. And so He takes the steps to bring us to Him. Last thing sometimes I've heard is the cross is not immediately intellectually compelling. It's not smart. Or it's not show-stoppingly spectacular. If I was doing it, there'd be special effects. No, I think there was some. But um, it'd be amazing. The statement of, if he was smarter, maybe he could have avoided the cross. Maybe he could have found a different way. And this assumes so much. It assumes that we know a better way. It assumes that that God's righteousness did not have to be fulfilled. That sin didn't have to be paid for. Because the more we think about it, the more intellectually compelling the cross actually is. When we realize it's the only way. It's the only way to salvation because it's the only way that sin and the penalty for sin is paid for. No other religion pays for it. Everyone else, it's about trying your hardest and doing better and we never get there. But God has a better plan. And he thwarts the wisdom in verse 19 of this age, of this world. See, being being beaten and crucified may have been seen as a sign of weakness at the time a sign of something that didn't fit the Savior, but it was a sign of His love and power and strength to go through that on our behalf. The end of the phrase of verse 18, just look at that again. The gospel is foolishness to those that are perishing. That's a really painful phrase to read. Those that don't accept the cross, those that don't turn to Christ are described as perishing, as dying, destroying themselves because they won't accept the free gift of salvation from Jesus. Because for whatever reason, whether the cross and the gospel doesn't make sense or whether they think the cost of following Jesus is too high, and it's not, it's an incredible full life. But whatever keeps them from that, the end is perishing. But it doesn't have to be that way. But it's hard for us to admit that we're perishing. The rescue plan of the cross demands Acceptance of the fact that I need rescue. That my sin is a problem. It's hard in a self-reliant world and in a world where we're told we're pretty awesome just for participating. We need Christ. We need salvation from our sin. We need rescue. 
And so that brings us to the second half of verse 18 and what he talks about in 23 and 24. The cross is incredible power to the believer. It's the incredible power of God to the believer. That second phrase is, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And, and that's a huge statement that I want to spend the rest of our time this morning sort of fleshing out, looking at a variety of verses. And we'll hit a few of them. I'll put them on the screen so you can see them. What does it mean that the cross is the power of God? And, and I come to the cross with mixed emotions. You, you need to know that Good Friday, I have a hard time some years calling it Good Friday when I'm thinking about what, what my Lord and Savior went through. But yet when I look through Scripture and, and what the cross means to my life and the changes to my life, and when I read that Jesus, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross so He could save me, then it's Good Friday. And so I come to this with those mixed emotions. And, and today I'm not looking to, to give you a medical description of the death of Christ. I'm looking to say this is how the cross changes us. This is what it accomplishes, and that's worth celebrating. Noel Alexander said, there's not a more liberating, redeeming, costly, significant, or glorious work in all of human history than the cross of Christ. So what difference does the cross make in your life? Maybe ask the question this way, what would your life be without the cross if there was no gospel, if you were never saved? Has the cross made a difference? And as we go through just some thoughts here and some bullet points of how the cross makes a difference, these are reminders to us. If you are saved this morning, if you are following God, then these are reminders to celebrate of what we are are worshiping God about this morning. Reminders to make sure our life is oriented around the cross. If you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, if you've never chosen to follow him and repented of your sins, then this is a list of what's available for you. This is a list of what could be if you follow Him. The first there is salvation. Salvation. And I just have a a row of words there. Jesus' work on the cross powerfully provides salvation for all those who believe. And only for those who believe. But it provides a rescue from the penalty of our sins. It's payment for a debt. We have a debt that our sin has incurred and the cross writes paid in full on that. And and I talked about this already a little bit because it represents Jesus taking on himself every sin you and I have committed. And he, he took that on the cross. And as he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, all of our sin and the penalty for our sin was on his personhood. And he hung on the cross and bore the penalty for that sin. And when he said it is finished, it was finished. And it was done. And Christ won. And that sin was paid for. In verse 21 of that passage of 1 Corinthians 1, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, meaning our best efforts can't get us to God, our best thoughts can't get us to God, it pleased God that through the folly of what we preach, through the foolishness of the gospel, to save those who believe. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And as we celebrate Easter, as we celebrate the cross and the resurrection, remember to be grateful to God for salvation. A salvation we don't deserve, we didn't earn, 
that he completely paid for. Because without the cross and without the resurrection, there is no salvation. He, in my place, took the wrath of God. That's what, what the word propitiation means. That he hung there and took everything that should have been applied to me. That's salvation. Because now I don't have to endure it. Isaiah 53, just listen to this. Isaiah 53, 3 through 6. As it talks about Jesus taking on our sorrows, our sins, our iniquities on himself. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken of God, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he did that so we could be saved. And so we could be in relationship with him. There's nothing else that could have brought salvation from the payment from the debt of sin. No other way. And so the cross is powerful, not foolish. Second point there, bullet point, is forgiveness. Forgiveness. The cross offers cleansing from my sin. It offers freedom from guilt. And, and understand the difference here between salvation and forgiveness. We can be saved and we can know we're saved and going to heaven, but we can still not feel clean and we can still not feel forgiven. And, and there, there's this unnatural dichotomy between the two sometimes because we don't understand what it means that Christ paid in full for our sins. And so it's a good reminder, the cross, as we think about the foolishness of the cross or the power of the cross, it represents forgiveness. My sin is done. It has been paid for. God says it's as far as the east is from the rest, the west, he will remember it no more. In Matthew 26, 28, Jesus is, and we'll read this again as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. He says, for this is the blood of my covenant as he raised the cup. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, it's one thing to not have the penalty for sin applied to us. It's another thing to be forgiven of that. That it's gone and there's reconciliation and that relationship's restored. In 1 John 1, 7, we read, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. This is where we talk about the beautiful exchange where Jesus gives us His righteousness and we are clean because of Jesus and He takes our sin. We exchange our dirty, ugly coat for His white, beautiful coat of righteousness. That's worth celebrating. It's worth remembering. So many times we can get into self-doubt and we can get into guilt and we can look at our past and we can say, I, I am paralyzed by my past. Jesus could never forgive me for this. Well, he did and, and he paid for the sins of the whole world. And how dare we still hold on to that guilt and still let that guilt define us when he doesn't. When God has said, that's done, that's taken care of, it is finished. Oh, how dare we say it's not. And so we need to realize we are forgiven. We are forgiven. 
Think of White Elephant Gift Exchange. You know, sometimes, sometimes you get some pretty junky stuff. I don't know if, you, if you've done Family White Elephant Gift Exchange. Sometimes I'm like, really? Did we dig in the trash for this? But here's the thing. In this exchange, we gave Jesus our trash, and he gave us the best gift ever of righteousness. Don't forget that this week. As we live in light of the gospel, we are righteous and clean before God. And that gives us motivation to live that way. See, or or the, the third point there, victory. Victory. God gives us the power to live for Christ. Did you catch the phrase in verse 18 there? It, the, the, the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. And, and the word use there is this ongoing sense of, yes, we are saved. Once we accept Christ as our Savior, it is done and we're saved. But then we're being saved. Jesus doesn't just leave us alone to say, oh, I hope you figure out Christianity. Hope you figure out that sin thing and have victory over the sin thing. I know it's hard, but you're on your own. No, the cross reminds us the power of the cross is that we are still being saved. That the work and the power that Jesus does in our lives is still going on today. 1 Peter 2.24 says this. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The power of the cross isn't just salvation. It's how we live. It means tomorrow, as you face sin, as you face temptation, the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and rose again on the third day means he is there trying to, or he is there helping you deal with that. I say trying because usually if it's a problem, we hold him at arm's length. And we don't realize that he has already given victory. He has already given every tool we need to conquer sin. He took care of that on the cross and when he defeated sin and death by rising again on the third day. The hold of sin is broken. You know, I I was watching um, one of my sons do a model last night and he was building a catapult, which is is pretty cool. And he gets to the end of this, this catapult building and he's missing the key piece that holds the catapult down. Okay? The, the, The trigger. And... This whole model works great, except it's missing a part that is needed to to trigger the the catapult to go. And he's like, Dad, what do I do? And we're going to try to build a little piece. We'll we'll figure something out. But it would be like us going into Christianity and saying, God wants us to be righteous and holy, and he's withheld one piece from us. No. He has given us everything we need to walk with him. The question is whether we access it and whether we come to him. The other bullet points, love is the next one. This is the, one of the power, powerful things about the cross is that it displays the love of God. The incredible, unconditional, all-consuming love of God. The cross was God's idea and showed his love for us, his desire for us. We already mentioned Romans 5.8. We'll put it on the screen. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's a thought for the day. Christ didn't have to save us. He wasn't forced by some weird obligation to come to the cross. He chose to because he cared about us and because he loved us and wanted that relationship. 
When we think of authority, we may think of revenge and, and just bringing down the hammer on sin. And God chose relationship rather than death. Next bullet point ties in directly with this. It's the result of that love is relationship. We can be reconciled and have relationship with God. We can have peace with God. The power of the cross is relationship. It's that we were once alienated and it allows us, because that sin is paid for, because that that item that was keeping us from God is taken care of and crushed and defeated, we now can be in relationship with God. And so this this calls us to, to say, okay, am I in relationship with God? Living in light of the cross means I recognize He loves me and I'm going to run to Him. I'm going to enjoy that relationship and I'm going to be in His Word and I'm going to realize He's with me and I'm going to worship Him and I'm just going to make my life about that relationship with God. Colossians 1 verse 22 says, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. He has made peace by the blood of his cross in verse 20. Last one, and I want to move to, to the resurrection here because Paul also says our faith is foolish. Our faith is, is futile if there is no resurrection. And there's a confident hope. Confident hope is the last one, and that's the power of the gospel. The resurrection confirms it all confirms the power of the gospel, confirms everything we've talked about this morning, and gives assurance of eternal life. He didn't stay dead. We, we, we celebrate that this morning. But it represents victory. It represents that if God can raise Jesus from the dead, we have that same hope that He will raise us from the dead after this fallen, broken, horrid world. And we'll be in eternity with Christ. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20 reads, And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us? What's the power toward us who believe? According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of the heavenly places. What He's saying is that same power that, Je- that God raised Jesus from the dead, that's the same power of the cross and of the gospel that is alive in you and me. And so we can't come to this world defeated. We can't come to living for Christ like like it's something we can't do. We have that same power working in us. I want to end by reading Matthew's account of the resurrection. Matthew 28.1 Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. And he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly. And tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus himself, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! (laughs) And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. 
Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The most incredible miracle that has ever occurred. And that's the same power that is the power of the cross rather than foolishness that is at work in us. And at the end, I come back to 1 Corinthians 1.18, our verse for today. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And the thing about that verse is there's only two choices. We're in one of those camps. Either we haven't believed in Christ and the whole concept of the cross still seems a little foolish to us, or we've believed and it is the power of salvation and forgiveness and relationship and the power of His love and the power of victory over sin. And it changes everything. But the good news is, is that's a choice. You're not stuck in one of those two camps. At least not the first one. You can choose to say, I will follow Christ. What He has done on the cross is everything. I urge you today, on this Easter, on this day that many people will be saying what we believe is foolish, to say, actually, it's not. When you understand it, it is the most incredible act of power and mercy and grace that mankind has ever seen. Follow Christ today, I urge you. As we celebrate the cross and the resurrection, the gospel is what that is. I asked the question earlier, what difference has the gospel made in your life? What difference does it make that Jesus paid for those sins and died on that cross and rose again on the third day? Because there needs to be a difference. If not, we haven't been impacted by the cross. Just, just right where you're at, a couple sentences. What difference does the cross make to you? What difference has the cross made to you? Just nice and loud. Freedom. Freedom. Hope. Hope. Life. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Peace. Amen. Redemption, joy, security, happiness, eternity. The cross makes a difference. We come to the Lord's table to remember that. To remember those, those six things that we talked about, about the power of the cross and His salvation and forgiveness of sins and victory and His love and that relationship. And, and, and we come to remember because we're a forgetful people. And, and we may know in our heads, but we forget that this is something that affects every part of our lives. And so this is a way that we remember. And we're about to pass around the, the, the crackers, which represent the body of Christ that hung on the cross, that he willingly gave, that he willingly sacrificed for us. And then the juice represents his blood that was spilt, the payment for our sins that was required of us because that should have been my blood, that should have been me on that cross But he took my place. And as we do that, we remember the resurrection that said once and for all, sin is defeated. And its hold on us is defeated. Lord, we praise you and thank you for your sacrifice. We remember, and by remembering, we live like people of the cross, like people of the empty tomb. Thank you, God, in your name. Amen. Amen.